Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Elijah Fleming. And I'm Colin McCormick. And I'm Christy Vogler. And today we're talking about the 1997 Hallmark miniseries, The Odyssey, directed by Andrei Konchalovsky and starring Armand Asante. Uh, with us this week also, we have a very special guest from UT Austin, Dr. Deborah Beck. It's so nice to have you with us, Dr. Beck. Thank you. It's great to be here. I have a little bit of experience with podcasting in various respects, aside from listening to them, which I think pretty much every citizen of planet Earth has at this point. And I'm really excited to be on someone else's podcast and not just talk about this hugely entertaining movie, not always intentionally entertaining, but hugely entertaining, um, but also just to, you know, be part of someone else's podcast and, and see how y'all are doing it. Awesome. Yay. This was a wild ride. I don't know about you guys. I had never seen this before. And I was laughing out loud this morning, <laughs> like just reviewing the, my favorite parts. This that my screenshot is, is one of my favorites. <laughs> um, so yeah, the main question that we ask all of our guests here in the very beginning, Dr. Beck, did you dig this movie? I so wanted to and I mostly did not. So <laughs> that was sad, actually. Because I have very fond memories of watching this movie with students who had, you know, read The Odyssey. That turned out to be way more fun than watching it by myself. I think this is the kind of thing where you need, like, a peanut gallery with you to watch the movie. Because doing it by myself, I just kind of got more and more sad as it went along. With these just occasional moments where I was very entertained, but not always in ways that I think the makers of the movie intended. (laughs) So there was definitely entertainment all through but I also think it should have been half an hour shorter. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about the way that it's, it's cut and edited because there's there's some weirdnesses there. But yeah, I, my thought was it, it was a roller coaster ride for sure, and I laughed when I was. I don't think I was supposed to laugh there, but I did, and I think I wrote down somewhere's like the most extra of extras I have ever seen. Like stuff happening in the background is the most. What are they doing? Um, Especially Odysseus's men, which I kind of get the point. Like, they're trying to make them look really stupid, but it's like, they're not that bad, are they? I should probably read the Odyssey again, just in case. Yeah, at the very beginning, when they, like, come running, they're, like, flailing. They're, like, running with their arms above their heads. I was like, what is happening? (laughs) They don't wear shirts when they go fight a war. Like, who does that? Like the number of times that people were wearing no shirts in circumstances where that was completely nonsense, and you know, also didn't wear a shirt during this this movie is actually the director. Like as I went and I watched a bunch of making of videos, and almost all of the scenes where he's directing, and I think you know, and I guess like they're on a beach in Turkey somewhere or Malta, so like it kind of makes sense. But he is shirtless in every single scene as he's directing everybody. Well, that's why he didn't make the people in the movie wear shirts either he just thought they were optional for everyone i was very frustrated by the shirtless people fighting at troy i know (laughs) but right before we started you were about to say or describe more of the circumstances in which you first watched this in your class so i have been teaching at ut for 12 years and before i taught at ut i worked for several years at worthmore college which has uh, an honors program, or it did when I taught there 20 years ago, where students kind of at the advanced part of their classics major would take a double credit class that was half of their course load in which they would read a giant amount of Latin or Greek. So in one of my seminars, they read basically the entire Odyssey in Greek. 
And at the end of most of my classes at Swarthmore, I would show a relevant movie. So one of them, in fact, was Life of Brian, of course. Yay. Yes. Uh, and actually, I had a hilarious experience with that, too, which I'm going to tell, even though it's not strictly speaking relevant. So one time when I showed that movie, and it gets to the part where the centurion pulls a sword out and sticks the point in the guy's neck and says, what is the locative of Domus? One of the students kind of said in this very thoughtful I just had a light bulb moment voice. She said, wow, I guess you're not so mean after all. <laughs> I'm very proud that I did not have hysterical laughter until after this was over. Anyway, I watched this movie a couple different times with a couple different Odyssey seminar classes. And the first one I watched it with, they only got as far as the credits where there's a, a slide that says, based on the epic poem by Homer. And my class just erupted and they wanted to quarrel with basically every single word on the credit slide, which if you're uh, studying Homer in a thoughtful and scholarly way, that statement is incredibly sloppy and vague and probably wrong. But I was sort of watching this, you know, melee of indignation unfold. And I thought, all right, this class was a success. Yeah, <laughs> you would get to the story and and I was pleased that I had shown it to them. So that was my first experience with the movie. And I was happy with it already at the credits. I just checked because Eli and I have talked about this before. But interestingly, Homer has an IMDb page, which is like one of my favorite things, which I want to talk about a, a later another person or another not person, another non-person who has an IMDb page. But I want to save it for we get to Cersei. But they give him like dates and they treat him like because he's credited for Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Troy. 2004 film and Troy Fall of a City and and he's credited as a writer in all of these and he's credited but he's not credited for this one I guess uh, this is a film that I think I feel like I've kind of always seen but it's one of those because I, I didn't watch it I don't think when it came out it aired on NBC it was like a two-day special on NBC 1997 and but I definitely watched it in like a middle school social studies class or a high school English class or, or you know, or like snippets of it or things like that. And so I, I'd seen all the discrete parts, but there were big sections and, and sort of swaths of this miniseries, I guess, or I'm not sure if it's, it's not really a movie. It's kind of a movie. It's weirdly paced, I think. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's sort of paced somewhere between a movie and a TV show. Yeah. But there were whole sections that I complete were like I thought weren't in it, but actually were. And this, as I sort of was watching, because Eli and Christy and I have been talking a lot about like sort of the nature of adapting myths to TV or film or, or, or whatever. And I think this is a very, we, we were talking about sort of the, the dangers of, or not there's the dangers, but the, the we were talking about the pitfalls or potential pitfalls of really sticking true to kind of, because in some ways, this is a very down the middle, at least parts of the Odyssey, but it, it, it sticks pretty close just in terms of like the events of the story. And I think to its discredit in some ways, and I think in certain places, it's almost hiding behind the myth. But yeah, Eli, we still need your input. I just, this struck me as something that, this was the first time I watched this, and this struck me as something that people would watch in school like it has that vibe of almost like biblical retellings where there's like bad acting and like all of the sets are kind of cardboard which maybe this was like a little bit more production wise than that but i was really surprised with how many famous people just kept popping up it was like bernadette peters <laughs> it was mm -hmm. like yes. <laughs> and christopher geraldine Lee. chaplin 
yeah, it just it like kept going. And I was like, I'm so confused of who this was made for. Like, who was the audience? And this feels like something that people would have seen when they were younger that would like stick in your head and you would never leave. Well, the comments on the YouTube link that you sent, Colin, had a lot of people saying exactly that. I haven't seen this since high school and it really stands up kinds of things. I was way past high school when it came out in 1997. So I only saw it as an adult. And also just at this time, like if you remember, like like weirdly, as I'm thinking about it now, like maybe it didn't seem at the time, but the late 90s was kind of a, a strange renaissance of not necessarily sword and sandal, but of like the mythic adventure, particularly on TV, if not you know, the sort of cinema renaissance of sword and sandal is going to happen in a few years when, when Gladiator comes out. But we've got the Hercules, a legendary journey. Xena is sort of probably in its prime right about now. There's a young Hercules show, and and they all look like this. They have that similar, like, this does look like a TV show. This feels like a super long episode of a TV show, and the production value does feel like kind of a TV show, just in, like, the way the sets and the costuming work. And, like, specifically, it feels like a TV show from the late 90s, like the Kevin Sorbo Hercules or Xena uh, with Lucy Lawless or something like that. Yeah, I would say this also feels like it's aimed at a younger audience. Maybe that's sort of like the goofy background characters that are sort of foiling all the good plans and doing everything wrong. And But there's also, I mean, it's very, there is some like blood and gore and there there is some more racy content, but it's also very PG at the same time. So I can't like put my finger on it. Like what else about it makes it feel younger? And I think I cut you off, Christy. I'm sorry. I was just going to say like, I think that was just it for me that in some moments, like what Colin was saying, like production seems like, hmm, like Hermes, who is flying like obviously in a harness, yeah. <laughs> for instance. It, um, it really doesn't work with that diaper too he's it wearing. Doesn't it doesn't help. You can tell it looks so uncomfortable. Yeah, it looks like he's really riding up on it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then there's other moments where like they built a Megaron. It's yeah. legit. It looks really good. And I'm like, yeah, that's accurate. And the the background is great. So sorry, go ahead. I completely agree with you about the Megaron, Christy. I thought that two of my favorite parts that I really did dig were the buildings and also the ships. Seeing those vistas of the ships and also just kind of the bumpy water feeling of being on board one of those ships, those I thought were really good. I thought that partly because I'm not very good at imagining places usually. And also because um, I'm doing some teaching right now where the class started with Sappho. And one of the things that I gave the students to read was a really dishy, stupid, novelized version of Sappho's life where like everything is an orgy and you're just reading it going, this is just ridiculous. And even though the students mostly thought it was ridiculous, again and again, they said things like, this was really helpful because it reminded me that Sappho's a real person even though they didn't really think this was the real person, I felt like the most successful parts of this movie for me, being very clear that what's successful for me has no relationship to what's successful for a normal person watching this movie. But what was most successful for me were the parts of it that were trying to create the large scale physical environment in which the things would have happened. You know, what does the light look like on an island in the middle of the, of the Aegean Sea? How do the ships stretching into the background cast shadows? on the water? How do they look as a group? Christy, what you said about the Megaron just as as the kind of place in which the people are doing the things. You know, then there were these sort of horrid moments, you know, 
Hermes diapers or the sea monster that eats Laocoon, whose name is mispronounced, which really irritated me. And at those moments, I'm just thinking, really? Really? That's the best you could do? Come on. They were definitely taking a lot of notes from, oh my God, I just blanked on his name. Mr. Knossos. Evans. Yes, thank you. Arthur Evans, yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm getting way ahead of us, but like the scene that I totally forgot about and thought even wasn't even in this movie was the Telemachy part where Telemachus goes to Menelaus. Mm -hmm. And they're, I mean, it's also, again, like the production value shows because they walk around the outside of Menelaus's house, but they never go in it, which I think is telling. Um, (laughs) And it would have been the Megaron. They could have just used the same Megaron. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, and that was like the the architecture for that was like just straight out of if you go to Knossos today and like the reconstructions and like the way the column have that kind of fat top mm-hmm. and the skinny bottom. Yep. Horns of consecration on mm-hmm. top. Yep. Yeah. But but to the point of like the sort of almost like camp of this movie and, and I, that's like by design and so Andrei uh, Konchalovsky, he also, he, he's done movies internationally all over. He's Russian but he's worked in I think France and Spain and the UK and but in the United States, he, he made Tango and Cash and uh, Runaway Train. But he's talking in a, in a sort of behind the scenes I was watching where he was saying that he really just wanted to strip it down to like the adventure part, which is why one of the things I talk about with students when I teach mythology or something like that is that like the parts that we think about and have entered sort of popular imaginings of the Odyssey is really only like a quarter of the book. It's books like eight through 12 yeah. out of 24 books, which makes up like, you know, four fifths of this movie and things. like. And that was a deliberate choice. Like, let's just get to the adventure part. Let's just have the action adventure. It's just going to be that. It's just going to be fun. You know, it's going to be goofy. It's going to be campy. It's going to be, there's going to be gimmicks with a flute player. Jurassic Park (laughs) moment. Yeah. (laughs) But the flute player was the one that got eaten in the Cyclops' cave because the whole Odyssey is so interested in the power of song. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me to be the total opposite of what the Odyssey would actually have done to have it be specifically the flute player that got eaten by the Cyclops, that was the absolutely last person that should have gotten eaten by the Cyclops. I mean, that's exactly the kind of detail where nobody cares about that, except for me. But that was my biggest <laughs> beef with the, with the movie, is it, it made all kinds of choices to do specific things that aren't in the poem that to me didn't add up to anything. They, they, they made up these things that they wanted their story to be about that just were stupid. I totally get it that the Odyssey is there to provide you with a jump off point, as Colin said, to tell an adventure story. Fantastic. You know, as we all know, classical literature is simply fan fiction with fancier names attached to it, right? But, you know, the story that that this movie is trying to tell, I don't really understand what the point is. When it tries to have a larger point beyond the adventure, to me, it just fell right on its face and really was incoherent and pointless and disappointing. Yeah, that was like, because there's like, there's a lot of themes that you can really draw out of the Odyssey. And, and we can talk about like some of the ones I was thinking about is like father son narratives or like veteran narratives of coming back from war. I mean, it's all of these stories. And I feel like this movie introduces aspects to all of these kinds of themes, but it then doesn't develop them. And like the one that really jumps to my mind is the relationship to the gods, because there seems like the arc that I think this film is kind of setting up is that Odysseus needs to like learn to like stow his pride and you know be more humble but that theme is almost just sort of paid lip service to in like the two scenes with poseidon where odysseus is like i can do and even like and this is again like is deliberately making a choice where in homer odysseus doesn't really get under poseidon's skin until after he blinds his son the cyclops and then rubs it in everyone's face and he says i'm odysseus ha ha har yada 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 and 
this like this this movie moves that up way way more where even before he leaves Troy for for sort of no reason Odysseus is like yes I did it F the gods you know middle fingers to the sky and then Poseidon is like I need to teach you a lesson and then when he's coming back to Ithaca at the end Poseidon is like I just want to make you suffer so you can know that you need the gods or something and that's one of those scenes I feel like we haven't seen like I'm not sure Odysseus has really changed really in any particular way. No, and I feel like there there doesn't really seem to be like that actual point of Odysseus actually dissing the gods. Like he was very respectful and was like, "Yes, Athena's on my side." When Isabella Rossellini shows up on the on the boat, which was one of my favorite things. <laughs> that like heart sound. <laughs> yes, it was amazing. The eye shadow in the movie should have gotten an Emmy. It won two Emmys. Can you believe that? Oh wow. I mean, it won best best miniseries, and Armand Sante won best actor. I my jaw fell open. I know. I, I know. I mean, if Armand Sante won an award, for a hundred percent sure, the person who did Alcinous's eyeshadow should have won a makeup. <laughs> like, Agreed. oh my goodness! Holy cow! <laughs> but yeah, he he definitely like seems to be totally on board with. Um, with Athena and like being protected and sort of you know it doesn't I'm like well which gods is it just Poseidon it's like you haven't done anything yet like we we haven't gotten to the part where you've actually insulted this one god yet so yeah I agree that didn't seem to actually add anything to the story it just switched it around and then had no follow-through in in the, in the way sort of things play out in Homer, it makes a little bit, at least to me, but then again, I might have rationalized this to myself because I, you know, am professionally invested. But the moment that Odysseus sort of goes on his brag rant against Polyphemus kind of makes a little bit more sense, but also maybe he doesn't really know what's at stake. But it sort of seems very, just in the world that this film is setting up, that like a very sort of actively dumb decision by Odysseus to insult the living personification of the seed just before you're about to make a very important journey home. It, you know, it, it's sort of a contrivance for the sake of the plot. Yeah. I, one of the things that stood out to me, like each time they referred to it, 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 it was more sort of felt more flat and was more disappointing and pointless was it started the way that Odysseus keeps referring to his world as being what the point of his whole life is. That happens when Telemachus is born and he says, I forget what he says, but something very vapid about, this is your world, Telemachus, and he holds him up and he, whatever. Um, And then in the scene where Odysseus and Telemachus are killing the suitors and Antinous says, yeah, okay, we were uncool, but we can give you all the stuff back. Odysseus says, you tried to take my world. And I just thought this is falling completely flat. I don't know what that means. I don't know how that distinguishes Odysseus from anybody else in the entire world that would be irritated about this. I don't understand how this is different from anybody harassing anybody about scarce resources. And it just sounds very sort of self-involved and and vague and sloppy. What does that mean? Clearly, they had a story in mind that they wanted to tell about Odysseus's world. And I think they probably thought they had created that because they had shown it physically which they did not. They did not. And I was very disappointed from with that. I felt like they should have just thrown that right out the window. Just had the great adventure story that Colin wants to talk about, which they did a great job with that. You know, even when the special effects were silly and we're laughing, we're still engaged with the movie. Mm-hmm. But the points where I checked out were always the places where people tried to justify their behavior or talk about ideas and they just failed. They just failed. And particularly when the Odyssey is so fantastic at that, Either don't do it at all, or 
just stay on board with the story you got from the Odyssey, but don't make some, up something stupid. I mean, that seems to me to be the worst of both worlds. Yeah, I kind of overall understood like my world versus traveling the world is like, there's no place like home. Is that what you guys are trying to say in the end is... <laughs> And um, the the amount of like how focused Odysseus is on himself, I think comes out right at the beginning scene that the only reason that I really touched on this whole childbirth scene, which is crazy and bonkers, because <laughs> Penelope goes into labor and Odysseus picks her up and carries her. And like at the end, he's like, these hands brought you into the world. It's like, ignore the fact your mother gave birth to you. It was like me grabbing you. And <laughs> I just finished my ancient, or not, um, history of medicine and diseases class, read Denise Scullin's article about like how the birthing body gets reduced to a number. She's only a four in terms of all of that. And just like this totally took out all the agency from Penelope of giving birth to a son to Odysseus. Literally, like she can do nothing but just be carried and then have a baby be pulled out of her apparently. So like that message was so focused on Odysseus to begin with that sometimes I wonder, it's like, why is Penelope even like into this guy? And we get the same flashback of like their loving interaction. We get it twice. There's no change of like, we have one loving memory between the two of them. That hide and go seek game? Yeah. <laughs> or whatever and it is they're playing. You're in eighth grade. I mean, you're gonna wait for 20 years because you played some Lapping people, whatever. No, it's one of those things that, like, I think when you're a kid, you're like, yes, that's what married life is like. You just play blindfold tag all the time or something. <laughs> then you're like, when you're an adult, you're like, no adult human being has ever acted like this. Yeah, maybe this is why I also feel it's like geared toward a younger audience, or it's like this very washed down version of, ah, yes, this is what two people in love is like, and this is what a heroic person's like feelings about their son being born should be, I guess. It's almost like Tommy Wiseau-esque, where like if you watch The Room and, and like this is what people in love do and yeah. like this is what like romantic moves. And I was, as I was watching these behind the scenes, uh, Konchalovsky, he's like a very, I mean, he's this very, I think, extroverted kooky Russian director but he's like he's giving directions like you need to chop your swords up here not or like or down here not up here like you need to be moving your bodies like this movie like he's a very like physical and I suspect a lot of that comes like he seems to be very particular about the like the direction and like movement of of the cast and things like that and but also like to sort of stick a little bit on the theme of you know what is the theme of this movie if there is one and is it the importance of home and going home? But then there's this sort of, the movie almost sort of cuts against that. And I forget who it is that says it to Odysseus. I feel like it's one of the gods. But they, they say something to the effect that's like, your life is the journey. And it's like, it's all about the journey for you, which seems to cut directly against the importance of going home. And, you know, I sort of playing lip service to a lot of themes. And that's very much like the Tennyson poem we talked about last week where he actually can't adjust. And, and we talked a lot about when we were talking about Jason and Perseus of the, uh, how these heroes like can't adjust back to civilian life because they're caught up in the adventure and the journey or, or what have you. And, and that's the whole point of the Tennyson poem is Odysseus. Like he can't be happy in Ithaca. He actually, he can only really be himself when he's out, you know, out on the waves. But then, yeah, so like the, the movie is kind of hinting at that, but then that also, again, like kind of goes nowhere. Yeah, well, I think it was Tiresias who said that, right? He mm. was he was the one who's like, you can't see it's what's you are blind to this that your life is the journey, 
But they mm-hmm. like framed that interaction and the whole getting a, a prophecy as something really scary and awful. And he was like really horrified by it. And so it's like the the journey is your life was like a bad thing, which I think is interesting in an Odyssey retelling. It's like the journey is your life is the horror is like that you are trapped in it. So then is the bigger theme that we should be trying to go home and that the journey should not be our life. And to support that, I mean, just as a minor sort of bit of trivia, so they, they obviously they cast Christopher Lee to be Tiresias, who at this point is most famous for being in the Hammer horror films and being like an old horror actor. Like he's up there with Vincent Price and, and guys like that. Like he's of that stock to have like a sort of horror actor to deliver like, you know, it's like the end of Thriller or something like that. And like grizzly ghouls from every tomb yeah. <laughs> are closing in to steal your doom. Like that's the kind of thrust of, Christopher Lee, and I just wanted to go on a minor sort of tangent of just Christopher Lee fascinates me as a pop culture icon because he's a man. It's how often in someone's life do they reach their sort of peak professional success in their like 80s, which is what Christopher Lee did because he's going to go right from this to a little film called Lord of the Rings. And then from there, he's going to be everywhere. And this is him like he's about to break and he or he's about to break out. And he's like, I think 80 or something at the time of this film. That was just a minor point, but. You're, you may get your IMDb page after all, Colin. You're going to make some amazing movies in your 80s, and then you're going to be a subject of adulation the world over. There you go. One can only hope. I was sort of hoping to do that, yeah, younger. But um, <laughs> the particular adventures, I think of all of the like the sort of scenes and the episodic parts of, of the Odyssey. For me, the, the Polyphemus is the one that sticks in my memory the most. Maybe it's just because it was shown the most when I was like in various classes. But to me, that's one of the more successful ones. Of all the uh, the adventures, I kind of like they got a uh, the the actor who played him Rita Sato is is a sumo wrestler by profession, but yeah, it seemed to like stick very closely to how I remember the story, which is maybe why I wasn't I wasn't like on the edge of my seat for that one. I was like, oh, this is kind of funny, this is kind of cute, but I was like, but I know what I know what happens, and it's just you know when if you're not gonna introduce something that like maybe tweaks it or changes something in the retelling then it's it does get very stale and that's kind of how this read to me it was just a little bit stale yeah i'm kind of of the same opinion i think right before that even the trojan war stuff because i had recently shown my class the final episode of troy fall of the city and like having this in comparison to that i'm like well this is just ridiculous okay achilles is dragging hector's body off I'm really sad Achilles didn't come back, by the way. for Like, he was supposed to come back when Odysseus went to the underworld and he didn't come back. It's like, please have that moment because that would have been great. It, you mentioned, like, this movie, it seems to borrow a lot from other movies. Like, there's a lot of Jurassic Park moments and mm. there's a lot of, um, there are some other. But the one that jumped out is they turned Hector into Lord Humongous from Mad Max. Uh, <laughs> like, he's just got the mask. Like, all he needs is just to be in the, like, whatever that cod piece that Lord Humongous wears. But he's like, because they turn Hector into this, like, I am Hector. And he comes out and then Achilles kills him like that. The whole Trojan War. Yeah, I have I have thoughts about the Trojan War thing. Unless someone... Well, before we leave behind the adventures in books 9 through 12, there was one detail about the Cyclops episode that struck me. I think because I was thinking about the way the movie handles books 9 through 12 and the way that's most of the movie, alongside the fact that that's most of what the ancient visual record has also. So the movie is doing what vase painters did, which is, at least as far as we can tell, what they did from what survives is it's 
doing the parts of the story that are the most fun to make a picture of, which is the Cyclops and not Odysseus in disguise getting stools thrown at his head, even though that <laughs> takes a lot more of the actual Odyssey than the four books where he's wandering around, you know, dealing with monsters. The one detail from the Cyclops story in the movie that's really not what it is in the poem that actually really disappointed me because I find this part so interesting is that the men, instead of sort of clinging to the underbelly of a ram, they put ram skins over their heads. So my first thought was, okay, they didn't have the right animatronic lambs to film that with an actual lamb. And then I felt like that was a, that was a mean thing to, to think. And I was not very happy with that explanation, but the Odyssey makes this this very interesting point that, that completely, of course, went away in the movie because the lambs weren't there, but also because the the movie's not interested in this kind of question. The I think the poem is really interested in showing a different side of the Cyclops because he's actually got a real relationship with the ram and expects the, some kind of tie from the ram to him as well. So the ram a little bit, you should excuse the expression, humanizes the Cyclops. It also shows us how clever Achilles is, uh, sorry, Odysseus is, that he figures out to ride out underneath the ram. Vase painters think that's fantastic. There's all these wonderful vase paintings of people underneath rams sneaking out of the cave. And I was very sad <laughs> that there were no rams in the movie. I just thought that was a real lost opportunity. And, you know, in some cases, it's sort of clear why the movie abandoned things. But in that particular detail, particularly since the rest of the story was really, as you all have said, so close to the poem, I thought, well, that's really sad. What, why did we do away with the lambs? Oh, well. Yeah, no, because as you're saying that, I, I clearly remember how Polyphemus goes on a whole speech. He's like, oh, you're my favorite. You're always like first back. You're always leading everyone back. Like you take care. Yeah. I'll say like my, my little note is like my one my one sort of case in defense of this scene, which I think this is the most Odyssean Odysseus gets in this film where he has the little minute where he's talking to the Cyclops. He's like, oh, but if you ate me, you're going to lose all the magic in my head. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, have you tried wine and things like that? Or like when someone's like, let's just kill him now. And he's like, well, then how are you going to open the door? Which is all to me very smacks very true of the character. And that's the only time we actually we actually get to see Odysseus be like playful, almost smarmy or something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Which is, I think, what I liked. You know, we get that, like, yeah, Doctor Beck's doing a dance. Oh yeah, they, well, they do the wine dance. Did right? He pulls yeah. out the wine, and then he's kind of doing this. <laughs> and then, yep. I don't think he's doing that. I, first, I thought that looks ridiculous, and then I thought, I bet he actually maybe did that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of like physical direction and like choreography in this film as well. Like or like the way like when Odysseus is in the cave with Calypso's nymphs, and they're like they're at like Burning Man or something. <laughs> or like the braids in his hair. I know. That was so bad. It started out great. Yeah, I thought I, I think Vanessa Williams was actually an amazing piece of casting. I thought she was fantastic. I was very indignant with some online reviewer I found who was smarmy about her performance. And anyway, I thought she was awesome. But I love Vanessa Williams from um, Ugly Betty. Ugly Betty. Yes. Yeah, I loved her in that too. So I was like, oh my gosh, she's even more beautiful. Like she ages so well in Ugly Betty. But like seeing her... As like Calypso, you're like, yeah, wow. good yeah. casting there. Like I was already impressed with Bernadette Peters as Cersei. Like I was like, oh yes, I love her too. And she was recently in Zoe's extraordinary playlist, and so that was really fun to like again see her in a really young, seductress mode, and that was really cool. And I think going off what Deborah was saying, there was those stale moments. Like I know exactly how this happens in the Odyssey. 
and they stay they stick so close to it but then what upsets me is then they leave out one little thing that would have really like if they were going for authentic like when telemachus goes to see menelaus i want helen to show up why didn't you cast a helen everyone casts a helen and let her have a voice of just her whole role in the trojan war and like they're just always kept being little moments like that where it's like you were so close if you were going to stick truly to the story and make this feel like a visual retelling and then you just you just didn't do the one thing that would have really brought it all together. We're, we're bouncing around, but in a way that I think that's very true to, to what Odysseus would want. But <laughs> the Telemachy bit is, again, I think, like Christy was just saying, it, it sticks true to the myth for the sake of, I think, sticking true to the myth, but then swerves at the final moment and, like, misses the point. Where the whole point of, like, books one through four, where Telemachus does his journey, is that he's it's a maturation, it's a coming-of-age story for Telemachus where this boy who's grown up without a father goes out and meets other people in the world and like has his first experience away from home and meets all these other people and also sort of learns about his father. So like the whole function of that journey is kind of lost because it's it's just sort of shoehorned in a little in a, in a way. And then also the the sort of knowledge that he gains from that, which is when he goes to Menelaus and he learns from Menelaus that Menelaus learned from a weird sea god that Odysseus actually is stuck on an island and isn't dead, but then this movie has Menelaus be like, yeah, he's probably dead. Which, and then Atlantis comes home immediately to find out that that's not the case. So then it was like, what was the whole point of that journey? Well, and it was interesting to me also how much I thought it really just messed up the whole story to move the time around. On the one hand, I totally get why we're not starting with showing Odysseus's importance by showing his absence from Ithaca and Telemachus traveling around and, and so forth. So obviously I grasp the concept that a linear time frame is what's necessary for a movie like this. I don't think I had really realized until I saw how flabby it got toward the end of the movie, how much the time sequence in the Homer's Odyssey, if we can call it that, really creates this very effective narrative tension and interest in, in Odysseus coming back. And that was actually really interesting. I think that's one of the most important fun things about crappy fan fiction is you go back to the original and say, well, this is better for the following reason. It's like reading scholarship that you think is wrong. It's almost more valuable than reading things that you think are right because you have to justify your own opinion in a much more systematic and concentrated way if everybody likes it, then you just kind of run around waving your hands in the air and saying, yay, we like it, wahoo. But you don't actually know why you like it when you do that. You're just enjoying your your own enjoyment. And seeing how the second half of the, of the show really fell apart to me because it was so kind of atomized. We're just, this happened and then this happened. I mean, and as Colin said, there's no point in him going to Menelaus because he doesn't actually learn anything useful. He doesn't see Helen. He goes to a Megaron from Crete when he actually didn't go to Crete at all. So, you know, that was one of the many oopsie things that mm -hmm. I found on the internet that were entertaining. And and then that sort of brings you back in a nice, if somewhat longer than maybe necessary way to why the, the sort of not very linear time chronology of the Odyssey is so effective. I've never thought about it like that before and that makes so much sense i also haven't read the odyssey in quite a long time but i feel like it's one of those things that usually you're either an odyssey person or an iliad person and i am an iliad person and i no. think that is 
you know this is true. You know this to be true. Um, I think Eli, part I'm of that you might is be outnumbered on this one. I won't speak I for Deborah, but I, I'm an, I'm in Camp Odyssey myself. I'm Iliad. I will admit. So it must be. Maybe it's an archaeologist thing. Who knows? No, I'm an Iliad person too. But okay. I think. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong. <laughs> I actually was just talking about this with my my Iliad seminar this week. I think the Iliad is a much higher amplitude poem. The great parts of the Iliad to me outstrip the great parts of the Odyssey. But there are long sections of the Iliad that are just boring in a way that doesn't happen in the Odyssey. So I think it depends in part on what kind of a narrative you want. If you care the most about the high points, then the Iliad gets a higher high point. But if you don't like, you know, books 12 to 15, where it's just a whole bunch of body parts on the ground in front of Troy, yeah, (laughs) that's not super fun. And I'm certainly not going to quarrel with anyone who would rather do something that's more steady state and where most of it is enjoyable. I completely agree. Yeah. That. I get that. I just think that I'm always I'm always going to maybe be more interested in like the the war movie, which I guess the Iliad would technically be, than uh, the road trip movie, which I guess the Odyssey is. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, that's one of the things that the that the movie gave up, um, which I understand, but which they gave up. The Odyssey very much, one of its main points, in my view, is that coming home only starts when you physically get to your house. That's one of the reasons that Agamemnon is so important throughout the Odyssey is to say, look, he got to his house too, and then his wife killed him, and that really didn't go well. So do not imagine that simply because you have set foot on your home that it's all good and you're fine, right? He sets foot on Ithaca in book 13. The poem's not over until book 24. And even then, there's all these loose ends about whether the suitors or families are going to be so mad at him for killing all their children, even though their children terribly misbehaved. And Odysseus makes clear why they misbehave. There's still this really open question, I think, in book 24 about whether there's going to be ongoing hostilities that Odysseus somehow has to deal with. And then Athena shows up and says, ah, we're done here, which I always teach as an analogy with um, the end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah. <laughs> Same kind of ending. Yeah. And I love doing that because my students are always dumbstruck that I even know about Monty Python. It's so funny because they think I'm such a dweeb that I can't possibly watch something like Monty Python. Speaking of the Iliad, yeah, what do we think of the, the little Iliad? <laughs> I just love it so much. Eli's gesturing so at her background. I'm like... I think that was the first moment that I laughed out loud. And then I was literally in my head being like, Colin, WTF, mate, why'd you make me watch? What is happening here? (laughs) Well, first, I just, I loved Achilles was hilarious. You could just tell that he had like bad hair extensions and he was like (laughs) dramatically throwing his hair around. It was so funny. (laughs) He was almost like a proto Brad Pitt in that sense. Like he seemed like an an early test run for that look. Which is why I wanted him back. He needed to come back. <laughs> it's like you. It's like you're going at a thousand miles an hour through the Iliad in like what four minutes? It's over so quickly. And Hector's the real bad guy. In which, in like the version in my head in the Iliad, I'm like always on Hector's side. So it was kind of fun to see him be <laughs> like this really awful, terrible character, and then. It just keeps going so quickly. He dies. He's behind the chariot, and then oh, we're done. The, the we're at the horse now. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, also, we we forgot also the best part, which is in every screenwriting class ever, you talk about sa- a save the cat moment that your your movie needs or your story needs to endear you to your hero, where there is a uh, 
uh, a random toddler just kind of out in the middle of the battlefield for some reason. For no reason. <laughs> can, we say, just... can we say it's a Styanex and then he has to throw him off the wall later and just... Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Maybe. no. <laughs> uh, no, my favorite part from the, from the Little Iliad was hands down the sea monster. Mm. Oh, I've, Who's... I forgot about that in the ridiculous of it all. Or whatever. And then they say, I love what they say, he comes out, they're like, oh no, Laocoon, the soothsayer, he'll ruin everything. <laughs> yeah. He was awesome. I, did he have a camel? He was just like walking out yeah! in full soothsayer garb. Uh, I need to look up, who, who's that The actor? I've got it right here. I, for the briefest moment, thought it was like Andy Circus or something. He had that voice. Talk about a British name, Heathcote Williams. Yeah. <laughs> Most British thing I've ever heard. That's a but great No, he name. was awesome for the 30 seconds that he was there. He was like, obviously, that's a lie. Just like It was weird because all of the scenery was just made of ham sandwich, and he was just, like, munching down on all of it. <laughs> <laughs> this was, I've mentioned this before, but there's a, a story from, from when they filmed the Thor movies and Kenneth Branagh was directing where the – I forget his name, but the actor who plays um the big guy with the axe – I'll think of it later and people are probably screaming into the mic but he he goes to kenneth brown and he's like i'm afraid i'm like being a little bit too goofy and like too hammy and then then like kenneth brown apparently says something to the effect is like you need to wade in the river of ham or something <laughs> like that <laughs> which is what laocon was and laocon goes and he wades into the, the the ham sea and then he basically gets eaten by a sea monster that is effectively like a giant sphincter it is. Well, the thing that the, the sea monster reminded me of, and this is completely random, but I really laughed so hard. And the first time I saw this, that my students were quite bemused. When I was a kid, my parents had these drink holders that they put out on the lawn that was like this long kind of skewer thing about two feet tall with a coil on the top that mm -hmm. you would wrap the glass in. So we had these little skewer things. The sea monster, when it was squishing up Laocoon and it was kind of going dun, 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 <laughs> across the ocean. To me, it just looked like one of my parents' drink coolers from when I was three years old, only the drink was Laocoon, and I just collapsed. I was laughing so hard. So that was clearly not the, the filmmaker's fault that my parents had those sea monster drink holders, but that was just absolutely. I think that the, actually the serious point that I'm making is that this sort of straight sea monster with this little one little coil on the top just looked totally nonsensical and bizarre. Like, was, what was that? Was weird. The the part that like sealed it for me was the fact that everyone was like very much takes that scene in stride and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, that happened. <laughs> <laughs> like a man was just eaten by a sea monster and everyone was like, hmm, okay, I guess we should take the horse. <laughs> Don't question it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> happens every day me out about that episode seriously is that nobody says gee i wonder if that means the horse is a bad idea why <laughs> is it a good thing that leo kwan got eaten by a sea monster why is that not actually possibly bad i mean clearly i didn't take the right courses in understanding divine portents but to me that's not self-evidently a reason to take the horse into this i'm gonna argue that like he just said i told you so one too many times so no one was sad to see him go and they're like, mm. you know what? Yeah, that was a favorable sign right there. <laughs> Let's bring the horse in. I, I liked the sort of the introduction to Cersei's Island when they're chasing that pig on the beach. I was like, oh, I know it's coming. Like, I know it's going to happen. And they were definitely really chasing that pig. And that was actually really, really funny. Have you ever tried to catch a pig? They're tricky. They're no, it was, it was really, really funny and actively like, yep. There you go. <laughs> but 
But I like that you can sort of see like he did that climb up the rocks and he was sort of encountering some of the the animals that he was like knew were his his men and his friends and was like, ah, it was like kind of spooky. And then the Hermes thing just completely took me out of it. <laughs> I have a tiny Hollywood trivia up. plug and then I want to back <laughs> off. But because I saw the bear and I made me wonder if it was there is a very famous bear in Hollywood named Bart the Bear who is credited on many, many movies. And he even stars in his own film called Bear. Um, where there's great anecdotes of actors being like, the bear got billed above me, or things like that, of this bear who like, he had like a 30-year career in Hollywood, and he's been in all the... And like, if you've seen a grizzly bear in a movie between like a certain time period, you've probably seen Bart the Bear. Look him up, Hollywood legend. Well, was it? Was it Bart the Bear? No, it was not. It was not Bart the Bear. I, I checked. <laughs> Well, now I'm disappointed, Colin. <laughs> Just like many moments in this miniseries. Yes. <laughs> you built it up and then disappointed at the very end. Okay, Hermes. This frosted tips diaper wearing thing. What? <laughs> what was this? He's like coming back from Studio 54 or something. Like. And that's what I was trying to understand is like, all right, so we're coding. One of the characters is very queer. Why? And why Hermes? Why? Yeah, that was one of those many, many things that they put something out there that could have been useful, interesting, or thoughtful, and was none of those things. Yep, yep. And I, and I, it just, it really sort of took out the spookiness. And I know we needed to like get that part of the story because you know he gets the the plant that's going to protect him from the sorcery that Cersei's going to try to change him into something, and like that needs to happen. But it was just so silly and campy. And if we're going for kind of spooky, creepy, then I feel like the tone didn't really work. But also the second that you get to Bernadette Peters, it can be nothing but campy. So I guess maybe that that's... Well, that. well, and it's also the awkward switch is like, here, let me put this thing in your mouth. And like, you just see Odysseus be like, mm-mm. and it's like, <laughs> this is awkward on so many levels. And to, to Elijah's point, like you could have done something really cool. Like we've seen through many movies that like he could have been one of the animals and Odysseus like which one of my men are you and then it transforms into Hermes but like they wanted to show off the winged sandals I guess <laughs> and then they have him just doing weird aerials on his way out and you're like okay <laughs> I don't know yeah I mean it was like Tinkerbell yes. which just really seemed like not the right Look. I think that's exactly what it was. I think that was this because I feel like man, so many discrete parts of this movie you could kind of just go and like wait that's just like the whole scene with the goat and Skilla is just like like straight yeah, out of Jurassic Park mm-hmm. or something. And I think like this is just like yeah, this is Kim Tinkerbell. Yeah, I, I appreciate the depiction of him as the Flash more often. Like we see that in Blood of Zeus, but I've seen it in some other depictions of Hermes. Is like he's just the fastest of the gods. So let's go with that option. Much better than. <laughs> Whatever this was, so. Whatever this was. So then we, we get to Cersei's palace, whereas this is, I think, the part that for me most is the, the actually the source material is is a hindrance because the more of the beats play out kind of similarly, but like, but, but again, we're like just the plot points um, without the honor because it, it sort of just seems like a sort of weird and almost nonsensical series of events where Cersei's like, drink the potion. Oh, you didn't drink the potion. Okay, sleep with me. Okay, now they're, you know, now it's a five-year time window or something like that. And it's like, you know, and again, that's more or less the series of events that happens, but it it translates poorly. It does. I feel like this could have been a a really much more interesting story if you, I don't know how, like modernizing that interaction in any sort of way, because it does read very stilted. 
But I don't, I like, do you guys have thoughts about what could have been better in that, in, in retelling this with these actors? Let's go, let's, let's stick with that. <laughs> oh, Bernadette Peters could have sang. Well, mm-hmm. that's always true. <laughs> I don't know. I, maybe part of the problem was just that the whole concept of, on the one hand, Penelope's at home being faithful. And on the other hand, Odysseus is screwing around across the Mediterranean. The Odyssey doesn't care about that at all mm-hmm. because that's not relevant, but it's pretty hard to just stick that into a movie in 1997 and just not care about it. And I think that's maybe one of the places where they kind of fell between two stools in the sense that they did the thing and they neither provided the original context that would explain it, nor did they create some kind of coherent modern version of a framework that would explain it. So it's simply unexplained and doesn't work very well. I think what I'm having in mind is like, these are very seductress men just fall for it. And instead, like, it could have been framed as actual coercion. Like, he he wants to save his men. And I think that could have been a really interesting commentary, too, of just, like, you know, there's always this assumption. It's like, oh, men always want to have sex, so there's a pretty lady, so, of course, he has sex with her. And instead, frame that as, like, he does love his wife. He does want to get back to her. But his men, who he also loves and cares about, have been transformed. So show that being a coercive decision. And I think that could have actually worked. It's almost like the scene, and there's another, a movie that I actually will go on the record and defend, but the Matrix sequels, where there's a scene where her name is Persephone, actually, but she's like this program who has some information that the revolutionaries need, and, and she wants the sort of kiss of true love, effectively, from from Neo, and then and, and Trinity's right there, and then and they're both like, uh, the and and so and then he has to like there's this whole thing where she's like i want to experience like real passion or something like that and like that's kind of i think like what you're getting at yeah i i feel like they almost got there because doesn't cersei say like you're thinking about your wife while you're laying in bed with me mm-hmm. and he's like yep because she's awesome <laughs> and it's like they were they were almost getting to that part but i like the the phrase you use like falling between the two stools where it's just like you, they didn't really land on either side And something that we talked about in regards to like Jason and Perseus is that they do terrible things. And in sort of the, you know, ancient context, they are heroic no matter how we would morally code their actions. They, whatever they do is heroic because they are heroes. And I think that really holds true with Odysseus in a way that makes it really hard (laughs) to translate into any sort of modern retellings that, yeah, he does go gallivanting around the Mediterranean and has these, you know, illicit affairs, we could say, we might say today, with multiple people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, that's that's not a problem because he's still, he's still our protagonist. I had a very entertaining exchange with a student when I taught mythology a long time ago where we were talking about how Odysseus says to Calypso, yes, you're beautiful and yes, you're, de- you're immortal and all the rest of it. I would rather go home to my mortal wife than stay with you. I had a, a student who flat out refused to believe that that was even possible. And I, it, you know, I wanted to say to him, you, my friend, are an 18-year-old man. But needless to say, I did not do that. But it was... <laughs> That's funny. I like that. It's yeah. like how an 18-year-old wrote the Odyssey. <laughs> it wouldn't have gotten past, like, stop one. <laughs> well, and I was just thinking, in terms of Helen, they do this quite successfully all the time. Like, Troy is, like, they show Menelaus being a completely... Like, it's a loveless marriage, so, like, they can explain her affair in that way. So it's it's like, if you're going to try and make this 
appropriate for a 90s audience, then you would have had to change a lot of aspects about the relationship between Penelope and Odysseus, and you didn't do that. So, like, you really need to or, – or just be like, yeah, this is okay for men to do it because it was at the time. Like, that was accurate. You know, I'm so struck as I'm thinking back on this conversation how little time we've spent talking about Penelope or Greta Skaki. Greta Skaki is a fantastic actress. Penelope is fundamental to the Odyssey. And in this version, neither one of them is really doing much of anything. I mean, the scene where Penelope seems to be having an orgasmic experience with an ocean. Oh, yeah. oh no. Totally ludicrous. That's like the pinnacle of Penelope's character in the Odyssey. And I just, I felt so disappointed both for Greta and for Penelope about what they were offered in this. Agreed. Yes. I feel like she can't, she doesn't have just like the, I'm taking care of everything without thinking about Odysseus moment. It's like even 10 years later, even 15 years later, it's like absolutely every minute of her life is thinking about Odysseus, which is bullshit. (laughs) It's almost like paralytic. That's like the state she's in where she's just kind of stuck. And even in the, when she actually reunites with, with Odysseus, she faints, which is a choice. Well, and that's such crap because one of the like pinnacles of the whole Odyssey is where Penelope tricks Odysseus. So Odysseus is coming back to Troy and tricking all these different people that he meets to test them and make sure that they're really loyal to him and so forth. And one of the things that identifies Penelope as the sort of proper wife for Odysseus, even after this incredibly long separation, is that she's able to test him and discomfort him by tricking him. And she not only doesn't do that, and I get why they didn't do that, but then she faints? Like, sorry, you really blew it there, people. And speaking of things that they, they sort of took out that sort of hamstrung them, when Odysseus himself gets back in, in the poem, he uh, Athena appears to him disguised, and he sort of pretends to be somebody else, and then he pretends to be somebody else with Eumaeus. And, you know, he has, like, a couple of different exchanges where he, like, spins a false narrative, and he doesn't really do any of those probably for time. But then Athena at one point in the show is like, this is why I love you, Odysseus. You're always playing your tricks or you're, 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 you're thinking one step ahead or something like relatively that. But yeah, I think, and we don't, we, and we, and we get also, we get less of the tension between Penelope and Telemachus that, that this is present, the spinning plates that Penelope is trying to balance. Because in so many ways, Penelope is the only match for Odysseus, right? Like she is the one who, who can actually outwit Odysseus. And so, yeah, there's there's none of that at all. And her little sliver that she's there in the movie doesn't live up to that being like the other half of Odysseus. No. The, the scene where they where she talks to him in disguise, because I know, Deborah, you have thoughts about this in the poem. And I have thoughts about this of, of you know, when she when he sort of he there's a moment of almost like he's trying to maybe he's trying to tell her that he's Odysseus or something like that and how she receives that. But in this movie seems to fall hard on the side because in the poem, there's kind of this moment where she asks about Odysseus and then disguised Odysseus tells this whole story about a time he met Odysseus and he describes like a very specific article of clothing that he was wearing that only Odysseus would know about and Penelope would know about and maybe there's this moment where Penelope figures it out it's much debated but in this the movie seems to fall that that Penelope has no idea or at least that's how I read it yeah I think that's right I think that undertow that that's running through that scene in the Odyssey is just gone I would agree with that. I mean, I have a, definitely an opinion about whether she does or doesn't recognize him in the in the poem, but I think that the movie couldn't care less about whether that's just not even a thing or there. And that's just one of the many places where Penelope gets kind of swept off to the side. The opacity of Penelope's feelings, they're very strong, 
I don't think Penelope understands her own feelings. And that's one of the things that's important about her as a character is just that's one of the things that Odysseus's absence does is alienates Penelope from her own feelings. It makes it, she doesn't even, not only doesn't know what she feels, but she doesn't have even any room to try to figure it out because she's being beset by the suitors and her, her whiny teenage son and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and that sense of like a person who is being squashed by the circumstances created by Odysseus's departure, she's not squashed. She's like just sort of constantly wailing in grief. And while, of course, Penelope in the Odyssey is always wailing in grief, that's not all she does. I think that's why one of my favorite moments that felt really actually realistic was when Odysseus's mother has given up and like is going to the beach to drown herself and she just runs out and like she doesn't know what to do. She just screams, no, you can't, you can't leave me at this point. And, and like that's why the relationship with the maids also seems really like the nurse of Odysseus, like that was actually really, and like she was the one who was like, when everyone's freaking out that Penelope's got gone into labor, she's like, calm the f- down, you guys. Like seriously, it's- Also, been- yeah, those guys were really freaking out that Penelope <laughs> was going into labor. Yeah. They were like having a panic attack. I know, it's like, <laughs> calm down. Maybe they were freaked out because they, they knew something about Greek culture. And the idea that a woman would be laboring, not simply outside of the women's quarters, but outside of her domicile building was so ludicrous that they were losing their <laughs> shit over it. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's not what happened, but I mean, that's a better explanation for their behavior than any that the filmmakers appear to have come up with. There's one thing I do want to talk about, which is the the final scene, the homecoming and, and the suitors, because we haven't talked about the, the suitors yet. In particular, I just want to shout out to, I think, Eric Roberts, who for me is one of the few, it was one of the actors that was really kind of stealing the show. And he's one of those actors that is kind of, he's like one of those guys where once you start recognizing him, he's kind of everywhere. And we got a young, mulleted, buff Eric Roberts in this as um, Eurymachus. I generally sort of liked this, although the end was a bit, you know, much. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, I I prefer the wishbone ending. Do <laughs> you guys remember the wishbone version of the Odyssey? Yes. I, I cite that as like... my first like segue into Greek mythology was wishbone shooting the bow and arrow through shooting the 12 the axes. That is how axes. I remember it. Yep, that was like all I could think about in this. And I I was like, "Oh man, I miss I miss that version because this this did just feel very yeah, abrupt, maybe. I actually, I just finished writing a book about similes, epic similes, and the one place where I really noticed how different the texture of the story is without them was in the scene where Odysseus shoots the bow. Because in the po- in the Odyssey, as he's stringing his bow, and they did this with close-ups that were at a leisurely pace, so they kind of did it. But one of the most memorable similes in the Odyssey is as Odysseus is stringing the bow, he's compared to a poet who's stringing a lyre uh, with a new string. And this just sense of confidence and ease and familiarity that's co- and skill that's communicated by that simile is so important to that moment. And I, when I saw Odysseus stringing the bow without that, I just thought, oh, wow, that's so impoverished. Not, that, not at all faulting the filmmakers. It was just this little moment where I was like, oh, look, my book isn't stupid. Awesome. <laughs> I, I love that simile for for that moment because that's really supposed to be Odysseus stepping back into that comfort zone with like all of that muscle memory and all of that ease and I did not feel that in this scene (laughs) and then it turns into like a 
Tarantino ending where everybody dies. <laughs> Telemachus like pins a guy against the wall and, and there's like two spears like that go into two people. Well, in the scene at the very end where Antinous gets sort of pinned and Melanthe dies at the same time, I just thought, oh, for heaven's sake. I was trying to remind myself because I went back and I picked up my a translation of the Odyssey and I was like, how does Eurymachus die? Because like, like, I'm pretty like this. Is, I got to make sure like this is the license the film is taking. And it, and it is. But Well, is that one of those choices to make it again where Odysseus is, is actually a problematic hero in our modern standards because he also does in fact kill all of the slave women who had to sleep with the suitors? And so they're like, okay, how can we show that that happens? But in like, it was unintentional on Odysseus's part and only one, like it only happened to one woman. And and she was kind of treacherous anyways. And that's what I hate is like, she didn't come off, she just came off as young and naive even. Like it wasn't intentional treachery. She's just like, I like the guy. He treats me nice. To, 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 I think, to Robert's performance, I think he does, he definitely turns the skeeve way up where I felt very uncomfortable with him, scenes between him and Penelope or just scenes with him in general where he was like, yes. he kind of just oozes creepiness and like, don't be alone in the room with this guy at all. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Yeah, he was very creepy. Um, I thought that was probably one of the parts of the movie that would have looked the most different to a 2021 audience than it did to a 1997 audience. Well, yeah, even the, the like, the house party that's basically happening at Ithaca the whole time. It's like it, at a certain version of this story, like that would be fun. We're just like, you know, partying and like taking this guy's wine. And it's like what the story from the suitor's perspective would be a, a different, yeah, a different type of problematic hero. But yeah, by the end, I think I was definitely bored. The mm-hmm. the road trip parts, the adventuring parts were certainly more engaging. And, and the before and the after certainly fell flat. I think that Armando Sante's emotional range is really just totally sold that material out. We, he doesn't make you emotionally invested in the character really at all. Not to me anyway. And... The whole second half of the Odyssey falls flat if you're not emotionally invested in, in not only in Odysseus as a character, but in each member of the family as a character. And I don't think we were cared emotionally about anybody on the show. And that's just the cost that you pay when you make it an adventure story instead. But then you have to figure out a way to make the homecoming an adventure, also, like the, the reunion an adventure also, which they just didn't do. They just kind of got bored and didn't really do anything. Yeah. Yeah, it felt like the, it just wanted to be over. And again, like the, the, the show generally, I'm not sure if it was designed. No, but I guess it was produced produced by Hallmark and it was designed for television because the whole thing, it's, you know, two one and a half hour chunks, but it splits it up very like it kind of it end the first half ends right in the middle of something right in the middle when they're in the underworld. And it, it just kind of like the pacing and it doesn't necessarily have like an act structure. It's just kind of like here's a series of events. I, I have one final thought and it was just. That poor goat being carried around through the underworld the whole time. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's like, that was a real goat. There's no doubt that it wasn't a real goat. I have two final questions for, for everyone. And, and one is, one is who do you think had the best mullet? And two, oh, no. which I think I, oh. I, I, my vote's for Eurymachus. But, and then the two is also is the, the if you were to narrativize the Odyssey, either in a miniseries or a, like, you know, I feel like HBO special is kind of the way to go you know what would you what would you do i think i think antinous had is that i'm trying to remember which one he, was, he, was. he had the curly one i think yeah i think he i like the other yeah i liked his 
he had a great mullet. I need to go through and like for Twitter and like do like a have like a poll of like who who wore it best. Who wore it best? <laughs> they, I think I have PTSD about mullets because I was alive when mullets were not ironic. So I, I can't I cannot assimilate a sentence in which excellent and mullet are together. I just Perfectly can't. acceptable. <laughs> Did Menelaus technically have a mullet? It just, that one seemed the most caricatured. Like that looked like they literally took it off the wall painting and put it on his head and called it a day. So like that one stands out to me. It did look like a wig. <laughs> we'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> Colin, repeat your second question. I was thinking about oh, mullets. Oh yeah. If you were to, <laughs> if you were to narrativize the Odyssey and, and say like a miniseries or something like that, would you, would you do, like, how would you do it? Would you do like, because this basically goes chronological and would you, because like, as I think about it, like, I think I, maybe this is a cautionary tale, but I feel like I would probably want to do actually more, more or less like the poem or like have maybe the first episode or something just be Telemachus and at, at, um, at Ithaca. And then my thought would be like, you know, we see the Odysseus shaped hole in, in Ithaca and we have Telemachus maybe starting his journey. And then the very end, the last shot of the first episode would be Odysseus waking up on the beach in um Skiri or um Phaeacia. I like that. And then we we go from there and just just being everyone's talking about like Odysseus this, Odysseus that. And then at the very end we see Odysseus and then I you'd probably want to do some kind of parallel storytelling with like the B plot would be Telemachus and his journey and then the A plot would be the Odysseus and then in the sec penultimate or third to last episode they would meet up. I think I would go for a 12 episode arc. That's why I would do and So you're saying pull Pull a Witcher, because Witcher did a wonderful job of like messing you with messing with you with three different timelines, three different chronologies, and you weren't sure which time period you were in, and they all converge into the same point in time at the very end. Yeah, yeah. Witcher does kind of like a Dunkirk thing, where like one's mm-hmm. told over like a hundred like years, and one's circular. over like yeah. I think that would actually that would work really well because some of the like chunks that are so episodic you could kind of pull out and make it seem like they happened in a different way. I mean, depending on who's still alive and who isn't, that might give you hints about it. But I think that would actually be really fun and maybe create keep that tension there, Dr. Beck, that you were talking about that's really lost when just tell it in a straight line. Which now I'm thinking about. I'm like, well, if I wanted to, you know, narrativize the story, we want to keep that tension. Yeah. I actually think, listening to the way Colin framed the question, I think I would do kind of like a Rashomon or The Affair kind of thing. Because the way you've mentioned HBO, now I should say I have never had HBO. I read a lot about those programs and I don't watch any of them. But I think that one of the things that's really interesting about The Odyssey is the little sort of glimpses it gives you of other people's perspectives that it either doesn't explore at all, or in the case of Penelope, that are totally opaque. And I think it would be a really interesting thing to do that would give a different kind of kind of suspenseful discontinuity uh, than the chronological sort of nonlinearity of the original poem, that the sort of, I wonder what it would look like to create that kind of suspense and discontinuity by making each episode or a couple of episodes talk about the same events from the standpoint, from the perspective of a different person. And, you know, make Nessica, for example, more of a fully rounded character than she is, even though she's clearly very important. You don't really ever get to know her in any meaningful way. Um, I would love to see what a really good director would do with a couple of Penelope episodes. That would also allow you to bring out more of the perspective of the characters that are enslaved, which is another thing that I think people are really interested in right now is hearing more from those kind of powerless 
voices and then sort of, you know, just kind of putting Odysseus sort of scattering him through through the thing and then having, as as Christy said, having somehow everybody come together in the last episode. So I'm completely incompetent to you know, like put that in any more specific terms than I just did. Um, I talked about um, yeah. an Amazon Prime show that was produced like one or two years ago called Hernan, where they did that. Like every episode is from the perspective of a different historical person involved with the Spanish conquest. And the very first episode is Dona Marina. So you get her backstory, but you also get her perspective of like some of the major events that ha- happened in the conquest, but you don't by any means get all of them. And I think that would be really cool to get to do. I really like that yeah. idea. But the, and, and also, so has anyone seen The Last Duel yet? Because I, I, I've only no. heard reviews, but it does like a Rashomon thing. There's apparently a mullet in The Last Duel. So, <laughs> Matt Damon um, has a fierce was... mullet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it does like a Rashomon thing where it's like one's from Matt Damon's perspective, one's from Adam Driver's character's perspective, and then the last part is from Jodie Comer's perspective. And that kind of like crystallizes the whole thing. Yeah, I like that a lot. That because I'm actually not very good at that kind of thing, but you know, trying to think about what what is the way that like a modern storyteller would actually try to create this kind of effect, and so your question made me think of that. So you get at least half the credit for it. Well, I'll t- I'll take it. <laughs> I think we're, we're we're approaching the end of our time, but does anyone have any final closing thoughts they wanna they wanna end on? This was silly. It was. <laughs> I worked really hard on this podcast. You like? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, my last thought is, like, you could also play bingo. Like, play archaeology bingo by naming the different, like, paintings on wall paintings that are in the background, and that could yes. just be a fun little go-to. Oh, wow, that is fun. That would be good. Yeah. All right. In that case, Deborah, we want to thank you again for, for joining us. We had a fantastic time. I think it, we love having the guests because it, like, elevates the conversation, especially when they, like, really have a lot of thoughts on what we're talking about. Do you have any sort of plugs you want to make, things that people should check out on the internet or, or find you or anything like that. Plug your book that might be coming out. Yeah, so um, I'm really bad at plugging myself, but I'm glad you gave me a lot of warning so that I could kind of work myself up to it. One of the things that I do in my classrooms, a lot of what I'm thinking about in this podcast, which was so much fun, and I'm so excited that you asked me to do this. I really enjoyed hanging out with y'all um, and thinking about the Odyssey together. When I teach uh, upper level Greek classes, my classes make podcasts. And I have, they're both linked to my faculty page at UT. One of them's about the Iliad and one of them's about Sophocles Antigone. And I'm getting ready to relaunch those as one podcast with two seasons in preparation for the third season, which will be produced by my spring class on Apollonius's Argonautica. So that's a podcast for people that have read the poem and that maybe are interested in the Greek language or whatever. But my students are fantastic. They say really interesting things. So if you're at all interested in that, go to my faculty page at UT Austin Classics, and there's links there to um, both of those podcasts. We can link that in the show notes, too. Oh, perfect. Okay. And um, the reason that I'm even able to do this at all, and I'm not just at home losing my mind 24 hours a day, is that I did finally finish my manuscript Yay! about the story. Hey. So the press still has the option to say this is not what we had in mind at all when we offered you a contract, but hopefully... Sometime next year, the stories of similes will appear with a press that I will not name for superstitious reasons, but I hope it will. Yay. Awesome. We're so glad you were here to talk with us. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. It's, I mean, this is a teacher's favorite thing is to see their students go out in the world and do amazing things that you can see you contributed to in a very small way, but it's really like students are like little stem cells. You know, they have 
everything they need to succeed themselves. And your job is just to like put reagent in the, in the dish, in the lab. And then the stem cell like turns into this amazing, you know, thing, this whole organism where you did a little thing and the student was fantastic and you watch them do their fantasticness and say, yay, I am so proud of that person. And people say talk. similes are a dead device. <laughs> that was a well, nobody, nobody who talks to me says that. Like, <laughs> one of my friends seriously said to me, you use similes a lot. I said, yeah, I just spent five years writing a book about them. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, we got, we're we going to sign off. As usual, you can find us on Twitter at, at DigMovies or MoviesWeDig.com. Listen to us on any of the major streaming services iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, things like that. Thank you for listening, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be back actually next week to talk with another special guest about a certain game called Hades. So thank you again, and bye, everyone. Bye. 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 I froze again. I don't know what to do. <laughs> so, oh, you're back. Now you're back. Oh, gosh. I was like, I was about to, like, chat. It's like, I don't know what's happening today, you guys. This is my week. This is how it's going. And then, the like, everyone was, was the internet. I thought you froze. And I'm like, well, that was a lovely thought. <laughs> we no, didn't that was hear it. your thought. You didn't hear about no. the goat? No. Just the goat. No. And I'm just like, he's that poor goat the whole time. And then he gets Jurassic Parked at the very end with Scylla. And you're just like, I think an animal was, in fact, harmed in the filming of this <laughs> video. And I think it was a goat. Oh. And that was my thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>